Well, as some of you heard, I'm, uh, I'm jumping off the tracks this morning and doing something different. Um, uh, typically, as you know, is my style is to preach through a book of the Bible just Sunday after Sunday. I think that's the way preaching should be done. Um, but every once in a while, uh, events and issues come along in the life of a nation or a people. And uh, I think sometimes it's just important to stop and address those issues. And that's what I, I felt led to do this morning was to put aside Isaiah for a Sunday and just uh, look at God's Word together on this whole issue of same-sex marriages. Uh, it's an issue that is um, just tearing our country apart, frankly. I think we'll continue to do so. It's an issue where there's great confusion, and it's an issue where we need to look at the Bible, see what it says, the whole counsel of God on this issue. So, uh, like I said, this is not my usual MO. I, I, my style of preaching is to preach through the book of the Bible, and as the Bible makes application to everyday life, which it always does, we eventually touch on life. But there are just times when we have to stop and say, look, this is something we have to talk about from God's Word. Uh, it's an issue that's dividing our nation. Um, here in Massachusetts, of course, is kind of one of the places it started. So there's a sense of historic significance to this issue as it relates to us as citizens of the Commonwealth. On the one hand, we have the, the Supreme Judiciary, of course, uh, ordering the legislature to make provisions, not just for uh, civil unions, but for uh, fully uh, same-sex marriages. And on the other hand, you have the legislature here in Massachusetts trying to convene a constitutional convention to make an amendment to the state constitution that says, no, it just has to be a man and a woman in marriage. And some of those have been overturned. I think they're meeting again March 11th to reconvene that, that convention. Uh, at, this, at the national level, the representative from Colorado this week introduced a, another amendment to the United States Constitution. I mean, that is a huge thing. This doesn't happen very often. And uh, on the other hand, the mayor in San Francisco, in defiance of California state law, has been issuing marriage licenses. And I think hundreds and thousands of uh, same-sex couples have been getting those marriage licenses. So you just see this thing. It's, it's sort of this issue is becoming kind of the... The, uh, the lightning rod issue that, that is identifying the cultural um, uh, fault line in America b between, uh, on the one hand, sort of traditional ideas of what life is about, and on the other hand, newer ideas of what life is about and what meaning uh, of life is. So somehow there's this thing happening. But it's not just a political and national issue. It's a personal issue. I, mean, pro I would guess most of us here have friends, family members, co-workers, employers, employees, neighbors uh, who are homosexual. I have um, a, a good friend of mine, a guy who's really nice. I enjoy talking to him. Uh, and uh, he's living with another guy. They own a house together. So why can't they be married? You know, it, it kind of raises the question. I look at this guy. I, I don't hate him. I, I'm not a homophobe, whatever that means. I, I don't hate this person. I, I, he's a nice person. I like talking to him. And, you know, so why not? Why can't he have what my wife and I have? So it's, it's a very a prickly issue. So I want to look at God's Word this morning and think about this whole uh, issue. We need to think about it as Christians. But let's just start with a word of prayer, shall we? Then we'll dig into the Bible. Our Father, we come to you because you are God. You alone are God. Besides you, there is no other. We are not God. We aren't even close. We are simply the, the lump of clay. You are the potter. You shape us, and you made this whole world. You made everything in it. And Lord, we are simply your creation. And so, Lord, we just come to you looking for the meaning and purpose of life. And yet, God, I confess that as a sinful human being, I try to 
become God, that one of the aspects of being a sinful human being is we try to be God, we try to usurp your role, and um, I try to define reality on my own terms. I do that all the time. But I thank you that Jesus Christ freely came to save sinful people like me. That Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross so that I might be forgiven of my sins. That though, Lord, You could have left me in my sin to be destroyed forever in hell, You freely chose out of Your own mercy to come and save me. And Lord, I thank You, Jesus, that You are such a great uh, Savior, even to a great sinner like me. And so, Jesus, I pray, would You give us wisdom? Would You help us? Would You rescue us? Lord, as we look at this whole issue of same-sex unions. We pray, God, give us wisdom from your word. Help us to have an open heart. Help me to have an open heart. I have this whole sermon prepared, but God, I just pray, help me to keep listening and learning and thinking and and not to become dogmatic and rigid. Lord, I pray that you might teach us, that you might show us what you want us to do as your church in, in this country. And we pray for our country, Lord, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, be with us now as we open up your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's what I want to do this morning. We've got one, one big, huge issue, which is same-sex marriages. I want to look at two key biblical texts that relate to the issue. And then I want to look at three common objections to the biblical teaching. And then I want to close with four things that we as Christians can do to be salt and light. So one big issue, same-sex marriage, two critical biblical texts that... We, we could look at a lot of biblical texts, but these kind of sum up what the Bible teaches. Then I want to look at three common objections to the biblical viewpoint. And then I want to close by looking practically four things that we as Christians can do to be salt and light in relationship to this issue. So uh, let's start with the two key biblical texts. Uh, I, I picked a positive text and a negative text. A positive text that says what marriage is and a negative text that says what marriage isn't. So the positive text is Genesis chapter 2 on page 2 of your pew Bible, if you're using one. Genesis chapter 2. And let's just look at what what the Bible has to say. Actually, let's look at uh, uh, page 3, verse 20. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. It says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Do you remember this story? God makes Adam... Puts him in the Garden of Eden. Says, take care of the garden. But then God says, this is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suit- find a helper suitable for him. So uh, all these uh, animals come before Adam. And Adam is looking for the perfect helper from all the beasts. And he names all the animals. But, you know, they're great pets and everything. But they're not a suitable helper. So God says in verse 20, Adam found no suitable helper. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And in Hebrew, there's the same wordplay. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. And, And there's this sense of completion that takes place when uh, the woman comes. So there's this great need in Adam's life, and the way God completes it is by making a woman for him. And here we have this great marriage ceremony. Verse 23 is kind of a, a marriage uh, statement. It's a, it's a romantic statement of commitment. This is my bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There's a sense of completion. 
And what's important here is this, this experience of Adam being given Eve and the two of them coming together is a paradigm for all of marriage. Because if you look in verse 24, it says, for this reason, in other words, because this happened to Adam and Eve, because this is the way it started, because this is how God did it in the beginning, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So for Adam and Eve, it wasn't just their private little experience that God gave them in the Garden of Eden. It became the, the, the form upon which marriage would be based. And it's because of that that we have marriage today. So it says in verse 24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother. So the first thing we learn about marriage is that it is a leaving of the family. It's not just a private feeling. Marriage isn't just a private feeling between two people, but it is a public act. It's a public institution. Everybody knows when you get married. One per a person leaves one family and they go into another family. And, and society recognizes that a new family unit has been created. It's a public thing. And then it says, we'll leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. There's the marriage commitment. And the two will become one flesh so that from now on they are one uh, legally, spiritually, physically, um, emotionally. Their, their lives are knit together. So here we have a picture of how God made marriage, what he made it for. It's between a man and a woman. And it's for uh, the two of them to come together in one, to be one flesh. It is a public institution. It's not just a private feeling. And one of the purposes God gave marriage, for which God gave marriage, was for the procreation of children. It's not the only reason. Marriage is more than just creating babies, but that's part of why marriage exists. Uh, look back at chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So in marriage, we have the foundational, most basic institution of society. But we also have the institution by which God is going to perpetuate human culture. Human civilization is going to continue because in marriage, in the family, children are going to be born. They're going to be raised up and instructed and, and sent forth. Uh, and, and so from one generation to the next, society continues. That's the, the paradigm. That's the model. That's the way God built it. And that is why in every single human civilization that we know of, for as long as we have known about it, there has always been marriage between a man and a woman. I mean, you've got to deal with that fact somehow. Every culture that we know of, as far as we know in human history, has always had marriage between man and a woman. And we, the reason is, we find in the Bible, is because God made us that way. God engraved it on our hearts. God uh, hardwired it into us. He, he put it into the DNA of society, so to speak. The reason we have marriage everywhere is because that's how God created human beings. Even in cultures that do not know the God of the Bible, do not worship the God of the Bible, even in cultures where they don't even have a Bible, they have marriage. And it's between a man and a woman. Even in cultures that have distorted marriage and practice polygamy, it's still polygamy between a man and multiple women, but it's still a man and a woman. Even in cultures that condone homosexual behavior, for instance, ancient Greek civilization in which uh, the, the Bible was written, even in those cultures where, where homosexual behavior is one uh, permissible form of, 
of sexual expression, they still, even in Greece, separated that from marriage, which was between a man and a woman. So as far as we know, in every culture, no matter how far it strayed from the biblical teaching, there was always marriage and it was always between a man and a woman because that's how God hardwired it into us. That is fact. It's indisputable. We have to somehow contend with that. And this is, this is just the way God made people. It's the way it has always been. So that's, a, that's a, the positive teaching on what marriage is. But I think we also need to look at a negative teaching because I think it helps to, to say what something is and what something isn't. It just helps to clarify things. So I'd like to look at Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. This tells us what marriage isn't. What marriage isn't. Look at Romans chapter 1. It's on page 11-12 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is where we'll start. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So on the judgment day, if someone stands before God and says, well, God, I didn't know you were real. I mean, I, I wasn't sure. And God's going to say, well, did you ever go outside? Did you ever look at the trees? How could you not know I made all these things? Where would you think it came from? You know, God's glory is evident. You have to know that there's a God. And if you look at the world and say, no, there's no God, it's because you're suppressing the truth. I mean, it's just so obvious that, that, that that's the case. That's what this text is saying. So verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So here in these few verses, kind of like the Reader's Digest spiritual history of humanity, this is what human beings have done. We have rejected the true God and created religion on our own terms. In the old days it was idolatry. Today we make up all kinds of theories and philosophies. But the human race is a story of people rejecting the true God, including myself, and just kind of making up a religion that's more convenient and helpful to them. So, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. So again, people made idols. Verse 26, Because of this, these next two verses are key, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So, uh, homosexual behavior is a perversion, a distortion of God's creation. Just as God created the world and people rejected God and made their own gods, so God made us, but human beings reject that and, and recreate themselves in a sense. They redefine themselves. And in this sense, homosexuality is a choice. Now you say that and people go, oh, it's not a choice. I mean, and, and when I say it's a choice, I don't mean it like someone's 12 years old and they're, they're saying, 
Let's see, what do I want to be when I grow up? Do I want to be heterosexual, homosexual? Hmm, I'll be homosexual. I mean, that's not how it happens. But it happens in the sense that all sin is a choice. That we have desires, we have inclinations that are distorted in a sinful world, and we just run after them and we don't challenge them. Uh, and, and that's just a reminder that I'm not just beating on homosexual uh, behavior as the only sin. Because look at verse 29. It says, they, you know, us, <laughs> we're the they, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, heartless ruthless. So it, homosexual behavior is one expression of this problem of humanity. It's not singled out as the only one, but it certainly is one, and it's one where it's very evident. So this tells us what, what uh, marriage isn't. Marriage is not between two people of the same sex. It can't be because that's a distortion of why God made marriage. So what does the Bible have to say about same-sex marriages? Well, positively, I, I think from Genesis 2, we have to say that same-sex marriage is an oxymoron, and negatively, it's immoral. Positively, from Genesis 2, it's, it's silly. And negatively, from Romans 1, it's sinful. It's, it's against God's plan. It's not how he made us. It's a distortion of the institution of marriage, which has been recognized across every civilization that we know of, because God wrote it into our hearts. Now someone will say, gee, that's great, Pastor, but you know what? I don't believe the Bible. I'm not a Christian. I understand that's your religion. I understand that's your Bible. But I don't care about the Bible. I, I don't believe those things. Uh, you know, you have your beliefs and I have mine. And, and I'm not going to listen to the Scripture being taught because it's not something I hold to. And, and I think that's something we have to wrestle with as Christians. We have to know what we believe and why. But also recognize that not everybody is basing their worldview upon God's Word. Uh, so, so I also think we need to be able to look at uh, common objections to what the Scripture says. Uh, as you're out there around the water cooler and in the neighborhood and talking to the kids at school and things like that, you're going to have to understand the way people think and how they talk. So I'd like to maybe shift gears a little bit from a biblical analysis to more of an apologetic thing. And I'd like to look at three common objections to the biblical teaching, three kinds of things that people say in response to this idea that marriage is between a man and a woman only, that that's God's plan. Um, and I, I could think of more objections. I'm sure you could, too. We could think of more biblical texts, but I just like the one, two, three, four outline for my sermon. So I'm going to stick with three objections. Uh, three common objections, three big objections. The first objection is this. It's, it's what I'll call the discrimination objection. The discrimination objection. Very simple. Hey, this discriminates. Why are you discriminating against homosexuals? Why are you denying homosexuals that you are something that you're allowing heterosexuals. That's giving unfair preference. You're, you're giving rights to one group and taking them away from another group. Uh, often uh, there's uh, a civil rights analogy made. Maybe you've heard the civil rights analogy. Hey, you know, in this country we used to discriminate against blacks. But we fought against that. We used to say that interracial marriage was wrong, but we've gotten rid of that, so why should we say that homosexual marriage is wrong? You're denying people their civil rights, their fundamental freedoms. It's an unjust unfair bias in our country. So what do we say against that objection? Well, I guess a couple things. The first thing I think is important to remember is that marriage is not 
a civil right. Since when is marriage a civil right? It's an institution. It's not part of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It's an institution that has been historically defined, not only in our nation, but out throughout time, and in all cultures and religions. It's, it's an institution. It's not a right. And the government has a right to define institutions. There are not-for-profit institutions. There are for-profit institutions. The government can make these designations. And it has rightfully defined marriage as a particular type of institution in our country. But even more than that, there's something more subtle taking place that I just wanted to highlight, especially when, when the analogy is made to civil rights. Because the, there's a presupposition taking place that I think we kind of have to surface. The presupposition is, is, that, is that homosexuality is biologically determined. It's unspoken but presumed, right? Isn't that what's taking place here? The argument kind of goes like this. Well, look, there are some people who are born tall. There are some people who are born short. There are some, I didn't mean to point to John and my wife, respectively. Um, there, there are some people... <laughs> that just kind of happened by providence. Um, there are some people with brown eyes. There are some people with blue eyes. There are some people who are athletic. There are some people who aren't as athletic. There are some people who are black. There are some people who are white. There are some people who are straight. There are some people who are gay. That's how the argument goes. And therefore, if that's the different types of people we are, how can you discriminate based on those things? But people, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here that you're not going to hear out in the media. Scientists and researchers don't know what causes homosexuality. They don't know. People assert all the time, well, they're just born that way. Nobody has proven that. And there are people looking. Trust me. There are people researching with an agenda to prove just that point. It has not been proven. It has not been proven. And, and, and it's asserted all the time. But we don't know that's the case. Uh, three lines of research in particular, there's been a look into um, uh, hormonal differences in adult brains, in adult bodies, and that's, that's been largely abandoned today, from what I understand. The second line of research has been prenatal hormone research, looking into the hormones that affect a child, the idea being maybe it, it hardwires the sexuality of a person, depending on what hormones they get. The results there have been inconclusive at best. It, you know, one group thinks they find something, so the next group tries to reduplicate, uh, to duplicate the research, and, and they can't. And don't, they don't get the same results. So, you know, part of research is you have to be able to have repeatable results as part of the scientific method. Uh, there's been the search for the gay gene. Haven't found it yet. Maybe we will. I don't, know. I don't think so, but you know, have not found that yet. They've done uh, separated twin studies where they'll take a twin registry, uh, of, of twins who are born and then find those twins that were separated at birth for some reason and they'll find the ones who are where one of the twins is homosexual and then they'll see how often the other twin is homosexual and it, it hasn't produced uh, noticeable results there's not a, a significant level of correspondence so the search is going on but the search has not proved fruitful yet interestingly though there is research uh, and not that we base our beliefs on research, but I just think you, you need to think, understand you know, these kinds of arguments. Uh, it, there is research, and, and some significant research, that links homosexual behavior in adults with both um, sexual abuse in childhood and distant, detached, bad relationships with fathers in childhood. But you will not hear about that research because there's a political agenda to not say those things. Because if people knew about those things, 
you know, it, it would defeat the argument that, that it's biological, because if it's biological, therefore you can't help it, therefore it's discrimination, therefore equal rights, and that whole argument, at least as it's being uh, formed, uh, sort of falls apart. Uh, so next time someone says to you, hey, look, homosexual is just born that way, just say, well, how do you know? How do you know that? And they'll say, you know, well, science shows us. Well, what science? If they don't know. Uh, or, or maybe, usually what will happen is if you ask that question and turn it around on someone, they'll give you an anecdote. They'll say, you know, well, I have this nephew. And, you know, by the time this nephew was like seven or eight, you know, we just knew this kid was different. He was a good kid. We love this kid. He's just, he was just different. So when this kid turned 17 and came out of the closet, our family was shocked in a sense. But in another sense, you know, we, we weren't that shocked. We were kind of like, you know, I, I guess we saw that, you know, when he was seven or eight. We saw that he was a different kind of person. And you'll hear anecdotal stories like that. The problem with that is it doesn't prove that it's biological. It's, it's begging the question, why was the child that way when they were young? You don't know. It's still begging the question. And so it, it, it has not been proven. And so that whole idea of a civil right and a biological determinism has to be confronted and, uh, and sort of, you know, just refuted a little bit and say, wait a minute, how do you know that? We don't know. Well, let me move on here. The second objection, one's the discrimination objection. The second one is what I'll call the love objection. The love objection. Hey, if two people love each other, what do you care what gender they are? Right? I mean, if two men love each other, isn't that what marriage is about? It's all about love. And so if two people love each other and they want to get married, I mean, what's, what's the problem with that? Marriage is about love. If two women love each other and they want to get married, marriage is about love, so let them get married. And aren't there a lot of heterosexual couples who have very unhappy, unloving, destructive marriages? And, and wouldn't you rather have two people of the same sex in a loving marriage than two people of opposite sex in an unloving marriage? You know, is that what you're upholding? And, of course, you have to say, well, you know, that's kind of a red herring, of course. I mean, obviously, I don't support marriages being unloving and unhappy. That's why we have a couples ministry in our church. Because we recognize being married is incredibly hard. And so we want to support couples in the, the difficult task of being married and staying in love and loving your partner. Uh, so, but, but the other thing I want to say is just that, look, uh, marriage is more than love. Marriage is more than love. It takes love, but it takes more than love. Marriage is not just a private feeling of love between two individuals. Marriage is also a public institution. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, right, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There has to be a leaving. There has to be a public recognition. It is a public institution. I, I've told this story before, but this one time I, I was talking to a couple who was uh, cohabiting, and they wanted to get married in our church. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to get married here, then you have to move apart, you know, and, and live apart, because cohabitation is against God's plan. It's putting the cart before the horse. First you get married, then you live together. First you become united to your wife, and then you become one flesh. It's not the other way around. And, and so I sort of told them, you need to move apart. And they, they just got so angry with me. I mean, she, you know, the lady was really mad. And she was saying, how can you do that? And, you know, we are married, she said. She says, we love each other. We're married in our hearts. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you love each other, and that's great. Um, you're living together. That's not so great. But you're not married. Marriage is a public thing. It is significant that you get a piece of paper from town hall that's a marriage license. That's important. Because it's a public, recognized institution. Always has been, always should be. So marriage is more than just love. I mean, if marriage was just love, then, then why are we stopping at same-sex unions? 
Why not polygamous unions? Why not? Really? You know, I, I love four different women. So why can't I marry them all? Oh, come on, we just don't do that in our society. Well, who are you to impose your moral values on me? Right? Well, I'm bisexual. I love a man and a woman. Can I marry them both? You know, you're denying my basic sexuality because I can't marry this. And it happens that these two love each other too. So can we all sort of get married? You know, and you go, oh, come on, Jeremy, you're just, you're just being a sophist here, you know. Seriously, though, what's to stop it? Once you take that step, where does it go next? There's no reason that it can't go to that next step. Or why can't I marry my dog? You know, it's like, oh, bestiality, oh, that's gross. Who are you to impose your morals on me? You know, where does it stop? And then at some point, why do you have marriage? Why not just have lots of relationships full of love, freely flowing in and out of society? Why don't we just go to the age of Aquarius and just, you know, free love, man. And, you know, who, forget this marriage thing. It's just, a, 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 just something that ties us down. Let's get rid of our suburban hang-ups and let's just all love each other and in and out of relationships. I mean, where does it stop if it's just love? It has never been just love. It's love, but it's more than love. The other thing about the love argument is it, you have to look at this issue of children. Children are part of marriage. And I, I understand people say, well, a gay couple is loving and they adopt a child. I mean, if a gay couple is loving, why shouldn't they adopt a child? Isn't it better to put a child in a loving gay marriage than to put a child in a dysfunctional heterosexual marriage? And, and I think the response is, children need, this is going to be revolutionary, a mommy and a daddy. A gay couple is a dysfunctional family because children need a mommy and a daddy. <laughs> Do I even have to make this point? <laughs> I mean, look, some of you here grew up and your parents died at a young age. Some of you here grew up without a mother or father. Your parents abandoned you. Some of you just had a, a father or a mother who was just out of the picture for whatever reason. It was hard, wasn't it? It was not normal. You struggled. And by God's grace, you struggled to overcome. But it was still hard. It was not normal. There's still something in your heart that's just not right that you have to you know, struggle against and work against because you need a mommy and a daddy. Uh, some of you here are single parents for whatever reason. And you are concerned for your children, are you not? You want to make sure that if, if you're a man, you want to make sure that your child can, ex can meet some good, mature Christian adult women in your child's life so they can know what a mature woman looks like and, and how, th how that relationship takes place. Or, or you're a woman, you want to have some men in your life. You know, you say, I want them to be in church so they can meet some mature Christian men and just see what they're like. Children need a mommy and a daddy. And a gay couple simply cannot provide that. Any distortion in marriage relationship is, is harmful to children, whether it's just a, a married couple that's not getting along or a divorce or a death in the family, or a homosexual couple. It's bad for children to have anything less than a loving marital relationship. That's what children need in order to develop emotionally, educationally, socially, morally, and in every other way. Common experience proves it. Research upon research has proven it. Why should we even have to research this? It's just so common sense. But let's move on to the third argument before I run out of time here. So we have the discrimination argument, the love argument, and the third argument is, is the uh, who cares argument. What do you care, Jeremy? <laughs> you know? Okay, that's what you believe. Then go believe that and just let other people believe what they want to believe. 
And why are you trying to impose your views on other people? Look, you just, you know, you have your beliefs, you do marriage your way in your little bigoted church, and, you know, let people do marriage their way, wherever they want to do it, and everyone can have their own beliefs. How does it affect you? It's not like, you know, the, the sky is going to fall on us. Hey, Jeremy, guess what? Heterosexuals can still get married. You know? Even if we have gay marriage, heterosexuals can still get married. Marriage is not going to go away. So, you know, what? What's the big deal is how the argument goes? Mind your own business. So what are you afraid of, Jeremy? What are you afraid is going to happen if this all takes place? Well, I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of a lot of things. Uh, one of the things I'm afraid of is I'm afraid of the destabilization of society. That any time you strike at a foundational institution and alter it, you will alter society. Maybe not in this immediate generation, maybe not in the next year, but over 10 years, 20 years... You know, today, you and I still have sort of traditional understanding of marriage, but what about the next generation of children? How are they brought up? And what are they taught? And what is their framework for understanding the meaning of marriage and relationships? And what about the children after them? Anytime you, you, you split the atom of marriage, you're going to affect the whole molecule of society because that's what society is built on. It's a systemic understanding. And so it's just this kind of you know, individualistic attitude we have today where it's like, I'll do my thing, you do your thing, and we don't affect each other. Man, I mean, come on, we're all part of the same system. And, and it, it all affects one another. And, and if, if marriage is uh, a taught at, to be between two, uh, a gay marriage is normalized, then, you know, what does that teach our children? Which leads me to my next fear, which is persecution. I fear persecution. I, am I doing hate speech right now? There are some people who would say, Jeremy, you are... You're hateful. This is hate. And I'm telling you, I don't hate homosexuals. I don't know if I hate anybody. I, really. I, I, I don't feel hate toward people. I don't hate people. I just disagree that this is, this is not the way God planned things. But some would say, Jeremy, you're giving hate speech. So am I allowed to do hate speech? Am I allowed to take this sermon and put it on the radio? Is that going to get shut down someday? I don't know the way things are going. What about my children? What if they go to school? And they're being educated that this is the norm, that gay marriage is the norm, and some people are gay, some people are straight. And, and my child stands up and says, no, that's not true. My daddy told me that homosexuality is a sin. <laughs> you know, whoo, what's going to happen to my kid? I mean, that'll, eventually that'll be like my kid going to school and putting a swastika on his notebook. You know, does school clamp down on that? Is DSS going to come investigate me for teaching hate speech to my children? I mean, you know, you're like, oh, you're getting paranoid, Pastor. I don't know. I don't know if I'm that paranoid. I don't know how quickly we can move there. I think it can be quicker than you think. Quicker than you think we can get there. But ultimately, my biggest fear is I fear God. I fear God. I, I fear what happens when I or a society move away from God in intentional ways. Our society is already moving enough away from God in so many ways. Why do we want to add one more log on the fire of judgment? I'm not saying that like, if we approve this, therefore a big meteor will fall out of the sky and destroy America. But, but I'm just saying that God, you know, God only puts up with so much sin until He says enough and He brings judgment upon a people. It happened in the Old Testament. It happens today. And you know, why do we want to take this extra step towards godlessness? Why do you know we've done it in so many other areas? Why do we want to legalize and institutionalize this form of sin? It just is. We're asking for it. We're asking for it down the road. Where is this taking us? So those are the things that I fear. 
Um, so those are the arguments. You sh uh, the, the discrimination argument, the love argument, the um, what's it to you argument. And I think there's good answers to them. But we only have a few minutes here, so let me just quickly move to what can we do about this. I want to think with you about four things that we as Christians can do rather quickly here. Uh, four things we can do to be salt and light. Jesus called us the light of the world. He called you the salt of the earth. The light shines in the darkness. The light shows what truth is. What does salt do? It's a preservative. In other words, Christians in the world are the things that are preservatives that keep the world from just kind of going off the deep end, which is a scary thought for some of us, but that's, that's what God has called us to be, salt and light. So how can we be salt and light? Let me suggest four ways quickly we can be salt and light. First way is to be informed. Be informed. Know what you're talking about. Read up a little. Listen. You know, a lot of us, I know some of you, you hear these things coming and you just say, I just want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. You turn on you know, CNN or Fox or whatever and there's two people arguing about it. You go, oh, I don't want to listen to that. It's in the newspaper. I don't want to read it. And I understand that's how some of us deal with these things. But we have to be informed. You have to read about it. You need to study. A book I'll recommend that was just an incredible book. It's called Homosexuality, the Use of Scientific Research in the Church's Moral Debate. It's by two psychologists who are Christians and they're unapologetically Christian in their viewpoint, but they're also very even-handed. I mean, what they do is they take scientific research and they look at four questions. How prevalent is homosexuality? Um, is homosexuality a psychopathology? What causes homosexuality and can it be changed? And, and they very even-handedly just look at the scientific research. And I, I found this book very helpful. It, it's how I learned about the whole thing that we don't know what causes homosexuality. It's one of the conclusions they have in here. The research doesn't show. But it's also Christian in his viewpoint. So they'll, they'll then ask the question, so what? So what does this mean for us morally in our understanding of Scripture? So I'll just put this here on the table. And if you want to come afterwards and write down the the uh, title and author and stuff. You can get that book however you want to get it. Um, so, uh, be informed. And of course, read the scriptures. You've got to know what the Bible says about it. Second thing we can do. One, to be salt and light, we can be informed. Number two, speak the truth in love. This is how we can be salt and light. We cannot be afraid to speak our minds on this issue. Conversations are going to come up with friends and at work. And my instinct is to kind of just soft pedal it and go in the background. We have to speak the truth in love. We have to do it lovingly. It doesn't mean we rant and rave and get hot and get our faces all red and start screaming at people. But, but we just speak the truth. We say, look, you know, oh, that's interesting. Why do you believe that? Oh, you think so? Well, how come? And you'll ask. I, that's one thing I find works great in those kind of heated discussions is I just sort of go into question asking mode. And, and what I find is when you start asking people questions about their beliefs, they quickly unravel because very few people are consistent. And sin is an inconsistent position to hold logically. It, it always unravels on itself anyway. So it's just kind of, it's, it's a done deal. So just ask questions. But talk. Don't be afraid to speak to people. Um, if, you, if you know someone who is uh, gay or lesbian and they're not a Christian, what should you do? Well, what you should do with any person who's not a Christian. You should love them, befriend them, care about them sincerely, pray for their salvation. And when you have a chance... Speak the truth in love. Uh, you know, some people aren't going to want to hear it. You may lose some relationships by speaking the truth in love, but let me tell you, if you lose a relationship because you've been a jerk, that's your problem. But if you lose a relationship because you spoke the name of Jesus, that's their problem. Don't ever be afraid to lose relationships because you're lovingly and humbly and gently speaking the truth in Jesus. That's called persecution. Christ called us to do it. Uh, he, he suffered His passion 
and we follow in his footsteps through suffering whenever we stand up and proclaim the name of Christ and people reject us because of the content of our, our beliefs. And, and we need to love each other uh, and, and love those who are outside the church and try to bring them to Christ and share the truth and love with them. Which reminds me of another thought, if I could just go tangent here for one second. Let's also remember that there are brothers and sisters who are born-again, converted Christians in our church who have been homosexuals and who struggle with homosexual temptation. There are. Uh, the, the prevalence of homosexuality in, a, in any culture at least in America and UK where the studies have been done, is about 2 to 3%. That's how many homosexuals there are in the population as far as the best studies show. 2 to 3% of the population. So in, that's, in this church, if you took those percentages, that's about 10 to 20 people. There's probably 10 to 20 people here who are you know, wrestling with those urges and those feelings. And, and we need to love them as brothers and sisters in Christ and support them in their struggle against that temptation just as they support us in our struggles against our types of temptation. Right? That, that's it. As long as someone's struggling against sin, then I'm with them and, and they're with me. Because I have my sin, they have theirs, and we're struggling together. South Shore Baptist Church must be a place where Christians who struggle against homosexual temptation can come and not feel ostracized, rejected, or singled out as if they're somehow a worse kind of Christian or something like that. We're all struggling for holiness in our lives. Some of you are struggling against heterosexual lust. How many more of us here are struggling against heterosexual lust compared to how many are struggling against homosexual lust? They're equally bad. Let's struggle and fight for holiness in our lives. So we need to be informed. We need to speak the truth in love. Number three, um, political action. Here we have to walk a fine line because the church is not a political party. The church is not a lobbying organization. The church's goal is not to round up voters for any particular political party. But on the other hand, we live in a democracy, as you know. I mean, you know all this. And we're a government for the people, by the people, of the people, or however that goes. And, and, uh, and so the government is us, and, and we need to shape the government. So I think it's totally appropriate for Christians... Uh, or even groups of Christians on their own to band together and write letters, to call senators, to demonstrate. You, you know, you can do those things, and we should have a, a say in the government. Uh, j just for myself, not on behalf of the church, but just myself, I wrote a letter to Mitt Romney. I just want to say, hey, I'm out here, and this is what I think, and here's, here's what I believe. There's one of us out here. And one letter doesn't make a difference, but 500 letters does make a difference. And 1,000 letters gets noticed, and 5,000 letters... So I'm, I'm not saying, hey, everyone write Mitt Romney like the pastor did. I'm just saying, you know, if you feel led, that's not an inappropriate thing for Christians to do if you feel God calling you to do that. And then the final thing, the final thing we can be, do to be salt and light, the most important thing, you know what it is, don't you? Pray. We've got to pray. We've got to pray and pray. I've got to pray first that God would humble me, that God would take the plank of sin out of my eye, before I go and get the speck of homosexuality out of your eye. I have to pray that, that God would bring the people I know who are homosexuals but who don't know Jesus, that God would save them just as He saved me. I have to pray for people in the church who struggle against the homosexual temptation, that God would strengthen them in their fight. And I hope they pray that God will strengthen me in my fights against sin. We need to pray specifically that homosexual marriage will not be realized in this country. We need to pray specifically that that will, that will not take place. But most importantly, this is the most important thing, we need to pray for a mighty revival to be sent from God upon our nation.
Because it is only by a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on our country that anything real is going to take place. We can have all the laws and amendments we want in place. It is not going to stop sin. Laws cannot change hearts. Laws can only restrain evil, but they can't affect our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can change our heart. And so just like in the days of old, like in the days of Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield in the First Great Awakening, or Finney in the Second Great Awakening, when God poured out a mighty wave of His Holy Spirit starting here in New England, and, and starting here, that God would do it again and He would send it forth in our country, that God would raise up men again who would fearlessly proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ that people would come to Christ, that hearts would be broken, that once again thousands would, would, would press in crying out, what must I do to be saved? That is what's going to change our country and that alone. So pray for a great revival that God would send it upon us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we, we do just humble ourselves before You. Lord, we pray. I want to pray those things that, that I just talked about. I pray, first of all, Lord, that You would take the plank out of my eye. I preached this sermon on this issue, God, but uh, Lord, if I were to preach on a sermon on each issue of sin in my life, we'd be here for, for months and months. So, Lord, I pray, take the sin out of my life. Make me holy. Help me to see, Lord, that, that my greed or my pride is just as bad as someone else's homosexual temptation. Lord, I pray that You would um, uh, bring people to Christ who don't know You, who are homosexual. I, I pray for my friend that I know, I talk to, that he would be saved. I believe You can do it. God, I pray for those brothers and sisters here in this congregation today who are Christians but who wrestle against homosexual temptation. Lord, I pray, strengthen them in that fight. Help them not to give up. And Lord, may we be a place where they can be honest about their struggles and not have everybody treat them differently. Lord, help us to, to be, not be hypocrites, but to realize that we're all struggling against sin. Lord, I pray for our nation. We pray, we ask You specifically that You would keep marriage between a man and a woman in our nation, legally speaking. That Lord, You would protect this nation from enacting uh, same-sex marriages. And finally, Lord Jesus, I pray that You would send a mighty revival upon us, that You might awaken every heart, that You might raise up great men to preach the Gospel fearlessly, that You might touch hearts, that You might change our nation from the inside out rather than the outside in. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Praise team, would you come and lead us in a, a final song? I wanted to close just singing a song of praise to God because... You know, the, the other side of this is we as Christians can get all freaked out and about issues like this, like, oh, it's all falling apart. We also need to be reminded that, man, God is in control. Jesus is still Lord. Nothing is happening outside of His will. And I think what we need to do is just praise Him to declare His faithfulness and His greatness and His majesty. Because ultimately, God is our hope both now and in the ages to come. So would you stand and let's sing praise to our God as a declaration of faith in Him. Let's worship the Lord together. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things.
mighty hand and outstretched arm. His love endures forever. For the life that's been reborn, the love endures forever. together right now. His love endures forever. 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 Let's end it on that. His love endures forever. Amen. Hey, after the service, come on downstairs for coffee. We're going to be meeting in Fellowship Hall to pray. And uh, maybe that freaks a lot of you out, but come on down anyway. We're not going to do anything that's going to scare anybody. We're not going to put you on the spot. But man, let's pray together as a church about this issue and about the upcoming missions conference. So come on downstairs, join us for prayer, coffee, and hang out. God bless. Have a great day.